Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. These are the, the commands, decrees and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Thank you, honey. Um, keep your Bibles there. We, we are going to refer back to that passage a couple of times, um, but we're also going to refer to a whole bunch of other things. I'm um, going to be quoting a few people as well. Uh, those things will appear on the screen um, behind me, um, so you can just make a note of that if you like as we go through them, rather than you know, endlessly be flicking through your Bible and playing catch-up if I'm going too fast. Um, one thing I've realised about uh, having kids is uh, something I've noticed at restaurants. Um, kids' menus at restaurants haven't changed since I was a kid. I don't know if anyone else has noticed that, but it's quite remarkable. They've all got the same things. There must be like some agreement about what you can and can't offer kids. Uh, it's nuggets and pizza and fish. Um, but what I have noticed is they all have the same dessert as well. They all have the ultimate dessert, which is the banana split. Now, everyone's had a banana split. Everyone loves the banana split. It's, it's, it's just some, it's an, it's an institution, isn't it? The ice cream and the banana and the choc fudge sauce and the, the nuts and the sprinkles. And you know how they give that, that little wedge of wafer that you, you would never eat a wedge of wafer at any other time besides when you have a banana split, but you have to have it. And it's all arranged in this long glass bowl. You know, someone's, somewhere someone is making banana split bowls. Like, what a useless piece of crockery but anyway that, that that's that's what you have and it's it's heaven isn't it for for any child or for any grown-up child it's it's a wonderful dessert and, and, and it's delightful except except I don't like nuts in my ice cream I think nuts in ice cream is worse than sultanas in biscuits like <laughs> don't give me those fake choc chips in my biscuits They're, it's not right it's wrong <laughs> But, you know, so I, no nuts in my banana split. But it's still a banana split, isn't it? Except, I don't like bananas and ice cream. <laughs> bananas are good. Ice cream is good. Bananas and ice cream is not good. <laughs> like, I'm sorry to say this, but it's just not right. And that leaves me with a bit of a conundrum. Because now what do I have? I have ice cream and topping. <laughs> Really, that's all I've got, is it? I mean, maybe if you're being really generous, you could say it's a Sunday, but that's really stretching, isn't it? It's hardly a banana split anymore. It's, it's, it's lost the essence of a banana split, hasn't it? 
It's no longer what it was. And, and that's, that's the thing, isn't it? Um, there comes a point where you chop and change things to a point uh, that it becomes something else. What it was, it's, it's no longer that. It's now something different. It's not what it was. We've, we've taken bits, we've changed bits, we've moved bits, and it's now become something else altogether. Now, here's the question. Can we do that with God? Not deliberately, but can we end up accidentally doing that with God or indirectly doing that with God? Because, because we kind of hear it sometimes, don't we? Uh, we hear it said, you know, I, I prefer the God of the New Testament. <laughs> you know, Old Testament God, he's all judgment and hellfire and brimstone. I don't really like him very much. But New Testament God, yeah, he's all right. Or maybe, maybe you've heard it said, um, I believe in a God of love. Now, usually people say this, um, I believe in a God of love, as opposed to a God of judging or a God of holiness or a God of some of those more uncomfortable things. Maybe we even do it ourselves. We, we have a tendency, don't we, to um, overemphasize the parts of God that we're actually more comfortable with. You know, we talk lots about a God of mercy or a God of grace and a God of kindness. But we don't talk quite as much about a God of judgment or a God of wrath or a God of absolute holiness. Can we even do this? <laughs> Is God a banana split that we can chop and change? Is it possible or is it right? Well, the answer is no. We can't chop and change God because God is one. God is one. And that is really, really good news for us. And we're going to unpack this morning why it is good news and why it is so important. Um, today we're going to deal with an attribute of God, which Karina mentioned in the kids' talk, which is called the simplicity of God. Probably a word you've never used of God, never heard of God, and that's okay. Um, it is a weird name. Um, let's not make the mistake, though, that we, we assume what we use simple for, um, for, for this. Simplicity, in this case, doesn't mean simple as we commonly use it. Um, if you've been here over the last few weeks, we'll have seen not much simple about God. <laughs> it's all quite complicated. But this is what we mean by simplicity. Simplicity means he has no parts. He is perfectly simple in essence. It's not a collection of bits. He's not a collection of attributes or a collection of characteristics. Um, as we saw in our text, which Honey read out for us just before, that, you know, that central uh, con confession of Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God is one. He is utterly unified. There are no parts and there are no divisions in who God is. And it's important for us to remember that because we get it a little bit mixed up. Uh, we, can, we can tend to think of God a, a bit otherwise. We can think of God a bit like a God pie chart, a bit like this picture up here. Um, you know, a God who's, who's a collection of things, a collection of attributes or characteristics or qualities. You know, he's this much love and he's this much holiness and he's this much justice and whatever. Or we can do something a bit different. We can think of all these things that we know of God um, as bits that are extra to God, like the next picture. We can think of, you know, this is God's essence, but then he is also a God who loves and he's a God who's angry and who's a God who's just and he's a God who's everywhere. And as if, you know, these were things that God does, but not actually central to who God is. Well, that's not our God. The Bible disagrees with both those pictures. And this is what it says. 
John writes this uh, in 1 John 1 verse 5. God is light. And yet we go a few more chapters on. 1 John 4 verse 8. God is love. And it's not just John who's saying this. Uh, God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. And, and this is how he reveals himself. He says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Do we, you, you see what God is saying about himself? Uh, what the Bible is saying of him. He is light, he is love, he is compassion, he is grace, he is patience, he is faithfulness, he is forgiveness, he is justice, he is all of these things. They are not parts of who God is, they are not things that God does. God is all of those things in perfection. They are who he is. God is not a collection of his attributes, uh, he is his attributes in singular perfection. God is love as much as God is light, as much as God is holiness. And we could go on. Now, it's not perhaps a thought that you've ever had about God. <laughs> I'll be honest, I'd never even considered God in this kind of category until recently. But here's why it matters. Here's why it's important. Um, I've got a demonstration. I'm not going to throw it at anyone this week. Uh, I've got here... We have a rule in our house, if you're going to take Lego for show and tell, it has to go in a bag. That rule applies for me as well. I've got a Lego car here from home, this is Jethro's Lego car. Uh, and as you can agree and see, this is one Lego car. This is Jethro's first ever piece of Lego, so it's a bit special. This is one Lego car. But, this car does not possess simplicity. And here's why. Okay, if I take this piece away from the car. It's lost something, but it's still a car, isn't it? I mean, it still looks, it doesn't look quite the same, but it's still a car. And we could keep going, I could take another piece off, could take another piece off, and, you know, it's still a car. We could, I mean, eventually we're going to get to a point that it's not a car anymore, but we could take a lot of pieces off, and it still remains what it is. Uh, another thing, before this was a car, what was it? <laughs> I mean, if you've bought Lego, you know this. Uh, you buy Lego and you get a bag of random pieces, don't you? <laughs> Just small pieces. And the pieces, the pieces precede the car, don't they? They exist before the car ever existed. That's the second thing. Here's the third thing. Uh, it came as a bag of bits. Um, what do the bits need to become more than bits? And we didn't just shake them out on the table and poof, there was a magic car. Like, that would be really convenient because it takes a long time to build Lego with a four-year-old. But that's not how it works, is it? The bits need someone to stick them together to become something else, don't they? They need someone to put them together. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth thing. What's the biggest problem with Lego? You spend hours and hours finding the pieces, putting the pieces together, you give it to the kids, and the next day it's in pieces again. <laughs> and you can't find them. You have to put hours. Lego breaks, doesn't it? Lego falls apart. It slowly becomes less than what it was. It doesn't last. This is one Lego car, but it is not simple. It doesn't have simplicity. And it's different, therefore, than God. You can't remove bits from God because he is a simple being. He doesn't have bits. He is. Full stop. If God were to have bits, 
then like that Lego car, the bits would precede God. They would be before God. But he doesn't have bits, so they weren't. If God had bits, that would imply that someone or something stuck him together. And that someone or something would at least have to be before God and probably by implication greater than God. But God doesn't have bits, so there isn't that person or thing. And if God had bits, then inevitably, like the Lego, those bits would fall apart. Things that have divisions, things that are made up of parts, break down eventually into those parts. If God had parts, he couldn't be eternal. But God doesn't have parts, and so he is. And all of this because of the simplicity of God. This idea of the unity or the oneness of God. He has no parts. He simply is. And that's why it's so important. Now let's be clear here. When we see God, uh, when we see him in scripture, when we see him in Jesus, when we learn of him, there are parts of him, there are things of him that we see more clearly than other things. Now that's not because he's got parts, it's because we're limited. The limitation is on our behalf. Um, imagine for me, imagine a huge gemstone, you know, cut, cut and polished gemstone. It's beautiful. Uh, it's standing in front of you and it's on a rotating pedestal. And you stand there and you watch this gemstone as it slowly turns around. Now, as it spins, what happens to it? Well, what happens to your view of it? I mean, it changes, doesn't it? As it, as it turns, one facet of that gem fades from view and another facet of that gem comes into view. Now you wouldn't say that that's a different part of that gem, a different bit of it. What you're seeing is simply different views of the one thing. And so it is with the God of the Bible. Sometimes we see his love most clearly. Sometimes we read passages and read of his wrath or his anger or his holiness or his judgment or his grace. Now that doesn't mean those are, thing, those are parts to God as if he's divided himself up. What it means is that's what we've been given eyes to see at that particular time. That aspect of him. Because God is one. And that's good news. Because what it means is that God is never self-conflicted. God is never opposed to himself when he acts in this world. Um, you know, if you're a parent, if you've dealt with kids, we get self-conflicted, don't we? Um, you know, you, you're telling your kid off and they do something funny. You know, they, they fart at an inappropriate time. And it's a serious moment, but you just can't help but smile at the same time because it's just a little bit funny. <laughs> And so you're cranky, but you're trying not to laugh. You're self-conflicted. God never has that problem because his, his anger and his humor, they're never playing off against each other. He's, he's all of his attributes at all of the time. Uh, this is what one theologian, uh, Michael Horton, writes. It's going to appear behind me. He says, We cannot rank God's attributes or make one more essential to God than another. God is love even when he judges. He is holy and righteous even when saving sinners. He is eternal even when he acts in time. All of these things we need to hold together about God all of the time. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely remarkable, isn't it? And the, the most beautiful and the most special place that we see this, the clearest place that we see this, is at the very most important moment in history. We see it best at the cross. 
Um, sometimes we end up talking about the cross a little strangely. We, we, we talk about it as if, you know, when, when Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, God's love, you know, defeated his wrath. Or, you know, his, his mercy overcame his anger against sin. You know, we pit these things together. But that's actually not it at all, is it? Because God is one. I mean, so Paul can write about it in, in Romans chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 26. This is how he says, He, that's God, did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you hear what Paul's holding together in that one verse? The righteousness of God, the justice of God, and the justifierness of God. You know, it's not God pitted against himself there. It's God in his infinite perfections, all of his attributes, working together in perfect harmony. For the sake of his people. Here's why that matters. If that wasn't true, if your forgiveness or your salvation rested on the fact that at one point in history God's love overcame God's anger, you and I would have absolutely no confidence at all, would we? We would have, we would have no firm ground to stand on. Because what if the balance shifted? What if God got angrier? You know, he, he looks at you and you, you keep making mistakes. He gets more angry. His, his anger starts to outweigh his love. Or what if you got less lovely, less lovable to him, and the balance shifted? I mean, it, it's terrifying to, to, to even consider it, isn't it? There's, there's no hope at all to be saved by a capricious and changing God. And that's not our God. Because our God is one. Our God is simple. He is all of his attributes all of the time in absolute perfection. And so as a result, you are 100% secure in him. If you have put your trust in him, then that is absolute. He will not change. And neither will your salvation in him. And therefore, you are always utterly secure. I don't know if you ever do this, but sometimes um, when I'm coming home from work, uh, you know, I get to the front door and before I open it, I have this thought, what sort of house am I going to walk into this morning? <laughs> this evening, evening, sorry, <laughs> not morning. Is it going to be cranky, tired kids? Is it going to be chaos and anger and tantrums? Is it going to be lovely, happy kids? It could happen. They, to be honest, they probably wonder the same thing about me. What sort of dad's going to walk in the door, let's be honest. We never have to fear that with God. And we never have to fear that with God because of this. Because he is one. Because he is perfect in love, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness and mercy and kindness and justice. All of the time, at any moment when you approach him, all of those things are absolutely true about him. And so therefore you always can. It is a precious truth, the simplicity of God. Hear, O God's people, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But, now maybe this one's already occurred to you. Um, there's a little fly in the ointment, or at least it appears there's a fly in the ointment, because we have this, this little belief which is difficult to understand. It's not really a little belief. What about the Trinity? What about the Trinity? God is one, and God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Three persons, all God. 
how do these things work together? It, can it work together? I mean, doesn't that, it seems like it almost directly contradicts everything I've just said. How is the one God three? Well, let me try to explain it. We are going to quickly, attempt to quickly, talk about the Trinity. This is, seems like a foolish thing to try and do, but we're going to do it. Uh, and you can time me. We're going to take eight minutes to talk about the Trinity. There you go. Uh, here's a simple answer, which I think sets us off in the same point. Uh, it's from a guy called Francis Turretin. It's going to appear behind me. I think this is a really useful quote. He said about God, simplicity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. There's a useful quote. Simplicity in respect to essence, but trinity in respect to persons. What's so helpful about that is, it's telling us that when we talk about God's oneness, we're not talking about it in the same way as God's threeness. That's a weird sentence. But his oneness is not the same as his threeness. There is one undivided essence or nature of God, and there are three persons, persons, subsistences, expressions of that. All holding that one divine essence or nature absolutely in common. Uh, maybe I can put it more simply. God's one essence exists in three persons. Um, there's a really famous, well, really famous, you may never have heard of it. There's a famous creed amongst nerds uh, from about the year 500 that deals with this topic, and it's called uh, the Athanasian Creed. It's all about the Trinity. It's very long. Um, but here's a quote from it which I think is, is quite useful. It's going to appear behind me. This is what it says. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person, the person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit is still another. But the divinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. It goes on, it's very uh, long, but it is perfectly worded and balanced. It's, it's wonderful. It's, it's really quite remarkable. One God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Holy Spirit is fully God. Each of them is fully divine. Each fully share in all of the divine attributes absolutely perfectly. It's important for us to remember that because that's not often how we talk about the Trinity, is it? Uh, we often talk about, you know, God the Father being the just one, um, God the Son being the loving one, and the Holy Spirit being the something one. <laughs> We're a bit fuzzy on that one. The powerful, the doing, the, I don't know, the, the other one. Um, it, but that's not how it works. Uh, they don't divide their attributes amongst them. They're not opposed to one another. They're utterly together. They each fully share in all of those attributes all of the time. And here's, here's why that matters. I think kids get this. Kids get this quite well. Now, most kids know that their parents are one. We, I mean, we say it at weddings, don't we? And the two become one. Um, kids know that parents are one. But kids also know that parents are two. And kids love to exploit that. I loved to exploit that when I was a kid. Um, I remember working out pretty quickly as a kid. There were certain things that you could go to mum for that she would say yes to that dad wouldn't, and vice versa. If you needed money, go to dad. It was far easier to talk into it. 
even if mum had already said no. Thankfully, mum and dad worked usually you know, at a distance from one another, so you could really pit them against each other. Mum was great to get food out of. And if you wanted to get out of a job, mum was the one to speak to. And we could play them off to our advantage. Because that, that one wasn't a real one. Well, it was, but not quite. That's not how the Trinity works. They truly are one. 100% united in will, in essence, in purpose, in character, in attribute. Yes, they take on different roles at different times, but they are 100% united all of the time. Now, the Bible is actually quite clear on this. Uh, there's a great example in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. This is what it says. It should be behind me. This is what it says. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. Do you hear just how wonderfully Trinitarian that is? That is perfect, isn't it? Christ, the Son, took on death, his blood shed. The Spirit enabled that sacrifice to be offered acceptably to God so that God the Father would accept it. The three working in perfect unity to achieve this together so that at the end of the day, you and I could be forgiven and saved. So they're not working at cross-purposes here. They're not um, working to play off each other. They are working perfectly together. And perfectly together in unity, united in essence and in desire, taking on these different roles, your salvation is made possible. <laughs> it's wonderful, isn't it? Each fully God, each operating to achieve the same thing. And that's great news for us. You might remember a couple of weeks back we, we saw that God was incomprehensible, but we didn't mean that he was impossible to understand. We meant that he is so big and awesome and other that we could, we could only barely begin to comprehend just a little bit of him, but never know him fully. Well, here's the good news. Each person of the Trinity is fully God in perfection, in essence, in attributes. And so to know one is to know all. It's what Jesus says. This is what he says in John chapter 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And then in verse 10, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Do you hear what he's saying? To know me is to know my Father because we are one. Different persons, yes, but same God, fully God. To know Jesus is to know the Father because of this. Because God is one, because God is simple. Simplicity and Trinity together makes possible a personal relationship with God. If Jesus wasn't fully God, or was only part of God, whilst, yes, we might know him, we would never fully nor truly know who God the Father is. We would only know a bit of him. We'd still be on the outer. But Jesus is fully God. And therefore he is the way for us to fully know God as Father and share in him and therefore live in him as well. Yes, it is. look, it's complicated stuff. There's no way to get around that. But it's good. We have one God in three persons 
who, perfectly united, perfectly working together, have achieved our salvation for their glory and made themselves known so that we can truly know them and share in them and live in them and with them. Simplicity and Trinity, that is our chance to know and taste in and share in the great mystery of our God. Let me lead you in prayer as we we give thanks to God for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the one God, the three persons and one God, this, this perfect unity of simplicity and trinity, perfect in love, perfect in holiness, perfect in righteousness and in justice, not made, unchanging, eternal. Father, it's, it's remarkable stuff. It's hard for us to get our minds around, and yet it's beautiful because it means that the hope and confidence that we have in you is, is as perfect as you are, is as unshakable as you are, is as eternal as you are. Father, we praise you that out of your perfections is hope for people like us. For you have affected our forgiveness, our rescue, our salvation, and you've done so entirely out of yourself, gifted by your grace that we would know you truly. Father, as we reflect on all of this, it's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And so we pray for your help in that. Help us to be able to just grasp even a little bit of this, that we would both marvel at you and be amazed by you and be glad at what we can see of you and find our hope strengthened 